So if you treat them right, you can actually get them to survive in liquid helium, which is you know, <laughs> minus 260 degrees, which is, you know, uh, 180 degrees colder than has ever been recorded anywhere on the planet. If you, if you, if you were doing research on COVID-19 right now and you decided the best way to study the physiological responses to COVID-19 was to take a COVID-19 patient and to, like, drop them feet first into a blender... <laughs> Yeah, there's no. There, there are. There are. So apart from all of the all of the horrific ethical issues, there's no. Those are minor. Those are yeah. <laughs> apart from those ones, you know. Um, yeah, apart from the the colossal ethical issues, there's just like it makes no freaking sense at all. Welcome to part two of my interview with Dr. Brent Sinclair from the University of Western Ontario. If you haven't already, go listen to the last episode where we learn about where he went to school and what inspired him to go into entomology. In this episode, we're going to discuss a paper that explores a new potential model organism for studying freeze tolerance. So I'm joined again by Dr. Brent Sinclair for part two of our podcast dealing with cold tolerance and some of the research that you do. Now, last time we discussed, uh, we didn't get into uh, your actual research, uh, and one of your most recent research papers. So uh, I'm hoping to discuss this paper, which is Laboratory Acclimation to Autumn-Like Conditions uh, Induce Freeze Tolerance in the Springfield Cricket Gryllus velitis, uh, Orthoptera gryllidae by Toxopius et al., uh, and that was Toxopeus, thank you for that correction. And that was in uh, 2019, Journal of Insect Physiology. So right off the bat, I mean, why, do you want to tell me what's kind of interesting about this paper? Yeah, so it's, um, so we've known for nearly 300 years that some insects can survive being frozen solid, right? And so they're what we call freeze tolerant. Um, and then from work done in Canada in the, in the kind of the 30s through the 60s by, by a guy called Reg Salt, we learned a little bit about some of the things that were associated with that um, ability to survive freezing. So he looked at things like, um, he identified things like glycerol, which was a cryoprotectant and, um, and a few other bits and pieces and really kind of defined a lot of the terminology. Um, and then there was sort of another wave of this work from the 70s through really to the, the present, it's sort of semi-continuous, um, studying freeze tolerance in insects. Now, with all that, and there's hundreds if not thousands of papers on these things, and we know about dozens if not hundreds of species that can survive freezing, we, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we don't know. Right, so almost everything we know is correlations, right? You know, mm -hmm. or glycerol at this time of year and the insect could survive freezing. Maybe glycerol is important, that sort of thing. And with like some very like weird little exceptions, there's not really any situation where we can say like, here's what the magic bullet is, that it makes this insect survive freezing and that one not survive freezing. So I feel like, to some extent, we've ended up in this kind of slightly unsatisfactory situation where we don't quite, we can't explain freeze tolerance. We can say these are the things that seem to be associated with freeze tolerance. I think that might actually be a direct quote out of a kind of a dismissive paragraph in the textbook somewhere. Um, <laughs> so, 
Yeah. So, so you know, but we don't we don't know much about the the underlying mechanisms. So, I think that one of the reasons for this is that we haven't had a model system that we can really explore like really well. So, if we look at the species that have yielded the most information about freeze tolerance, we have Eurosta solidaginus, the goldenrod gall fly. So, these are these things that live in northeastern North America inside galls on goldenrod plants. And they're amazing little maggots. They're like little balls of fat that can survive being frozen to like minus 80. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Wow. Except that they're really, really hard to work with, right? So, it, so the experiments usually go, you go out and collect a whole bunch in, the, in the, the wild and you rely on whatever the vagaries of the wild are and then you kind of do some essentially correlational studies on them. You know, you grind them up and say, oh, look, there's more of this than that. Or you expose them to something and see that, you know, one of them developed more of these things or produced fewer offspring or whatever. But then if you want to do more than that, you know, we've discovered some cool molecules in there. Um, Katie Marshall at UBC and I did some work looking at these like weird fats they produce. There's all sorts of neat stuff. But the problem is that like you can't do much of this experimentally, right? They're, they're, a plant, they're an obligate plant parasite, so they live inside a plant. They're univoltine, so it takes a year to get a generation of anything. Oh, no. Pull them, and you can pull them out of the plant. Like, you can pull them out, and we like to sort of store them in little 96-well plates. They're quite easy to work with. Except that then, like, basically, you can't even really do much with them. They're basically this, like, little ball of fat. You try and inject them with something, they're, they're sort of turgid, so you just sort of end up with, like, a deflated football on one hand and a, a sort of small, you know, <laughs> fat in the other hand. Um, so they're, they're great to work with for a bunch of reasons, but they're not that, um, they're, they're, they don't allow us to do like much in the way of actual experiments. You know, I don't think we're going to be crispering these guys up anytime soon. I mean, you can't really, it sounds like rear them. No, well you can actually, I have colleagues that do this, but they tend to be ecologists and they're studying kind of plant insect interactions and population dynamics and things like that. Like, you know, as a physiologist, you know, I want like loads of animals on tap that I can grind up. And right. the, the best way to do that is to hope that there's lots of people around being a bit negligent about mowing their like grass verges and stuff. So we can go out and just collect the, the goldenrod galls from the wild. Um, you know, another species that is really fun to work with are woolly bear caterpillars. These, these orange and black um, creatures that you see crawling around in the fall. And until you want to do an experiment on them, they, these guys are everywhere. You can't go anywhere. Like when I'm out running in the fall, I have to kind of avoid like accidentally standing on them and things. But then the moment you want to do an experiment with 600 of them, it's really hard to find 600 of these woolly bears. <laughs> so, but again, the same problem. You can rear them in the, the lab. It's not that easy. They're still univoltine. You kind of end up with some, some limitations. So those are kind of two classic nice solid species that we work with here. Anyway, so, so we got those. When I was a PhD student, I worked on, um, on wetter, these famous big um, flightless crickets in New Zealand in the mountains. They're great, but you know, they're, they're not widespread. They breed slowly and it feels a bit bad to be kind of pulling them apart. Um, I actually think that one of the best potential models, uh, another species I worked on as a grad student, which are alpine cockroaches in New Zealand, because they're small, they're abundant, they presumably breed like cockroaches, right? Um, yeah. 
but I never really got a chance to try to develop them as a, a model, and it's hard to get permission to remove native species from New Zealand. Um, so in any case, so where we're at is we're at the situation where we don't necessarily have very many good models that you can grow in the lab. Now, two of my colleagues have been, or two groups of colleagues have been developing models for studying freeze tolerance. So one is, um, is a, a little maggot, a little fly called Chymomyza costata. So it's a drosophilid. Um, Chymomyza is actually the, the genus that sits in the middle of Drosophila. It means that Drosophila is not a real genus. Drosophila melanogaster is not in the genus Drosophila. Oh, no. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So these guys are, um, these guys are um, essentially mushroom flies. And they, uh, groups in Japan have studied them for a long time because they diapause really well. But um, they also have this extraordinary ability to survive low temperatures. So if you treat them right, you can actually get them to survive in liquid helium, which is you know, <laughs> minus 260 degrees, which is you know, uh, 180 degrees colder than has ever been recorded anywhere on the planet. Oh my God. Now what is treating them right? Is that putting them in an insulated jacket? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, so, so essentially, so, so it's kind of funny. So for the first like 20 years that people studied them, they were universally acclaimed as being freeze avoidant, so they didn't survive freezing. But then it turned out that they just needed to be in contact with ice to initiate ice formation. And then that would then um, allow them to survive freezing. And then if you kind of cooled them at the right rate and in the right stages and things, you could actually get them to become really, really freeze tolerant. Wow. So these these little maggots, they're kind of, they're, they're sort of beguiling um, in that, that it's like, wow, this is like Drosophila, it can survive freezing. But um, they're not as easy to work with as Drosophila for a bunch of reasons. They kind of require okay. quite a lot of pampering. But um, my colleague Vlad Kostel in Czech Republic has made some amazing progress with these guys. So they've identified some of the molecules that um, are associated with freeze tolerance. And one of them, proline, they found that if they take individuals that are not freeze tolerant, if they free, feed them huge amounts of proline, so they make them hyperprolinemic, right? So they feed them huge amounts of this free amino acid. And that can actually make them freeze tolerant. And they can sort of get similar results with Drosophila larvae. But again, not as well as you might hope. So the advantages of these guys are that they are super cold tolerant. And the, disadvantage, the, the disadvantages are two. One is that they are um, very small and kind of inconvenient to work with. Mm -hmm. The other is that, they, um, is that they are so cold tolerant. So if you think about what you want in a model species for studying freeze tolerance, you don't just want to be able to freeze them and have them survive. You also want to be able to freeze them and have them not survive because freeze, insects that can survive freezing do still die under some circumstances. Yeah. So the ability to conveniently you know, cool things down such that they die or don't die or survive or don't survive is really good. And if these things are surviving minus 260, then that's not massively convenient. Because <laughs> you can't really study the mechanisms, right, that allows them to survive and not survive. Exactly. exactly. And so, well, certainly, I mean, you can study some mechanisms, but one thing it doesn't allow you to do is to explore why it is that some animals can survive um, freezing only under certain circumstances. And yeah. that is, a, to some extent, it's a matter of taste in your question, right? So they're studying right. something that is 
absolutely gobsmackingly, amazingly impressive. But it seems to be at least a little bit fundamentally different to the way that most other things are, are addressing the same strategy. Um, the other species that's been being developed is really quite a nice um, model at the moment, is a, a creature called Belgica antarctica. And so this is the, the largest land animal in Antarctica. So it's a midge. So it's the only true insect that lives in Antarctica. Wow. And it's up in the, the banana belt and the, the, um, the Antarctic Peninsula, you know, where they get like rain and things like that. <laughs> and um, and the, the advantage of these guys is that they're much more kind of freeze, they're very freeze tolerant, they're very tolerant of environmental stress. Um, as a larva, and the larvae are, are still very, very small, so quite hard to work with. But they're sort of reasonably convenient to kind of handle and do experiments with. And, and Nick Teets at University of Kentucky and Rick Lee at Miami University in Ohio and Dave Denlinger at Ohio State have done a lot of work developing this as a really interesting model. A um, couple of disadvantages, um, still kind of small, and also, they only live in Antarctica, and they're not very easy to rear in the lab. In fact, I don't know. Gosh, <laughs> that makes it so, very inconvenient to collect. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, and also, if you think about what else you want with a model species for studying something, is that you don't want it to be just the species that you know that Brent Sinclair and his buddies can study because we have the keys to the gate. <laughs> if you want, if you want to make progress, you do it by having lots of diversity in approaches and investigative styles and questions and techniques and all of those things. And you can only get that if you have multiple different groups working on it, in my opinion. Yeah. So why am I hung up on size, I guess, is the other thing. Um, and the reason is that um, when we're doing physiology, biochemistry, molecular biology, if you want to measure how much stuff is in an animal or what genes it's expressing and things like that, there's a real tendency, and I've been as guilty of this as anybody, to, um, well, to take your insect of choice and like throw the whole thing in a tube and grind it up into little pieces into you know, a goo and then extract stuff from it and measure how much lipid or protein or messenger RNA or, 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 or there is, right? Yeah. Now... If you based, if you, if, you, if you were doing research on COVID-19 right now and you decided the best way to study the physiological responses to COVID-19 was to take a COVID-19 patient and to like drop them feet first into a blender. <laughs> you know, there's no, there, there, are, there are, so apart from all of the, all of the horrific ethical issues, there's no. Those are minor. Those are, yeah. <laughs> apart from those ones, you know. Um, you know apart from the, the colossal ethical issues, it's just like it makes no freaking sense at all. Like, right. you know, who thinks that, you know, oh, we're studying a lung disease. Let's just grind up this entire monkey and see, <laughs> see what it's doing. It doesn't work, right? And so we, and we see the same sort of thing with, with insects. I mean, insects have tissues and different organs and organ systems and things like that. So, so I'm quite interested in trying to move beyond that approach to um, be, move beyond that approach to, to try to actually like look at what individual tissues are doing, understanding what those systems are doing, how they interact and things like that. And again, from the point of view of understanding freeze tolerance over the 
you know, over the long term and different groups and different aspects of it, then I think that that's potentially a good way forward. So that, brings us, so that brings us basically to this paper where you introduce a new potential model system that's looking at these crickets that are freeze tolerant. Exactly. And we came upon this, of course, because I'm just an immense genius and I just sat at home and I thought, insect would be the perfect insect to do this. And use my encyclopedic knowledge of all, um, of all the invertebrates in North America, I thought, Felicis would be the one. Incredible. <laughs> just, I mean, just bow down in my presence, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. <it> feels... <laughs> how, how, did you, how did you come up on this particular cricket? A whole bunch of complete coincidences. So the first coincidence is that there's a guy called Kevin Judge who teaches at McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta. And Kevin works on the behavior of various kinds of orthoptera, and he has done for a bunch of time. And many, many moons ago, um, we, when we started working on crickets, he gave us our colony of Gryllus pensylvanicus, the species that, that Heath McMillan at Carleton University did his PhD on. And anyway, and then Kevin finished his PhD and moved off to do a postdoc in Lethbridge, Alberta. And we ran into him at a conference somewhere and he said, hey, I've got this other species of Gryllus, which might be kind of good to work with. They're in colder places. I collected them on campus here in Lethbridge. Why don't you grab those and, you know, and, and see about that? So we threw them into the lab and, and you know, and they grow nicely in, in culture. So we grew them. And then we had a, um, a student, Lisa Coelho, her, her first, um, her initial plan for her master's melted down when an incubator overheated. So we're like, oh, what do we do? Oh, no. Why don't you measure cold tolerance in these, in these crickets, right? So at the time, we we're interested in why some things, uh, in essentially what determines the um, temperature that things go into chill coma at. So when you cool animals down long before it forms, what happens when you, what, what, what stops them from being able to move? And we thought, well, these guys are more cold tolerant. Why don't we compare Pennsylvanicus with um, Veletus? And we had this hypothesis that Veletus would be better at maintaining um, but they'd be better at maintaining iron balance in the cold. Sure enough, they would. Well, this is the, is the cricket that y'all now have in this study. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, the key thing about this was that our basic assumption was that they're not going to survive freezing. Gorillus pensylvanicus doesn't. None of the other gorillas do that as far as we're concerned. That's cool. We'll just use them like this. So then fast forward a little bit, and I had a student... Um, Laura Ferguson, who started a PhD. Now, she, she's an eco-immunologist. So she was interested in immunity and low temperatures and so forth. And she started using Veletus, Gryllus Veletus, because she wanted to use Gryllus Pennsylvanicus, but um, there were two other projects going on at the time and no one wanted to share their animals. <laughs> animals. So she's like, well, fine, I'll use Veletus, whatever. And so at some point, one of the nice things about this is that they actually overwinter as a, a nymph, so as a little you know, mini cricket. So from her point of view, this actually made them quite a good species to work with because she could work with these nymphs and actually, you know, expose them to winter conditions and it was relevant to what they experience in the real world. So that's cool. So she was doing an experiment where she, um, where she wanted to overwinter them in the field and bring them in periodically to see how their immune system changed over time. So she did this, as many students in my lab do, by putting them into a highly technical um, enclosure called a Tupperware container. 
and <laughs> in a, a top secret location in my back garden. <laughs> I think that's the same methodology that y'all used in this paper. Is that right? For because you it's had some exactly fields acclimat- yeah, yes. acclimatized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyway, and so she'd go out and she'd like shovel through the snow and pull out the crickets and take them back and infect them with bacteria and see what their responses were. One day she sort of comes in and she says, you know, I think that these things might be freeze tolerant because when I pick, bring them in, they're like all solid and chunky and like kind of, you know, bounce if you drop them. And then after a while they thaw out and they seem to be fine. And I'm like, wow, you're, a, you're, you're an eco-immunologist. You don't know, you don't <laughs> No way, no chance. So we did some more experiments and sure enough, they seem to be. So that was kind of a neat observation. And I had a a student starting, Xander McKinnon, and he was starting a master's. And I sort of was like, well, why don't you, Xander, figure out how we can induce this freeze tolerance in the lab so so that we've got a way to make them freeze tolerant so that we have a model system for studying freeze tolerance? brings us to this paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is really neat because that's basically what y'all are looking at is how do you induce that freeze tolerance? You know, you have your field population, which is, I guess you could say your control, you know, that's the one that's, that's experiencing the natural conditions that would make it freeze tolerant. And, you know, you say fall like conditions because with a lot of these insects, there's a number of factors. So day length that you guys look at, gradual change in temperature that you guys also look at that can make uh, an organism basically ready to be, you know, freeze tolerant. It's kind of like a type of a priming. Is that right? Exactly. And Xander tried lots of different ways to do this, you know, starting with just, let's just throw them in the fridge for a month and see if that makes them freeze tolerant, (laughs) you know, to all sorts of other things. Right. Which, and, you know, and, and essentially what there's a table in the, I'm not sure if I can't remember if it's in the main paper or in the supplementary material where, he went through like 20 or 30 different potential, you know, treatments to try to make them freeze tolerant. And, um, and yeah, and it didn't, didn't work out great for most of the time. So he basically like killed a lot of crickets, right? <laughs> so in the end, so we sort of, in the end, we took it, we sort of said, well, let's take a step back and let's like think about, well, what are they experiencing out there in the, the, the real world? and then try and replicate that. So he, so, so to start with, he took like, you know, the whole of the fall and the day, day length changes and the temperature changes day by day and basically created like a little program to incubation to be a mini version of that. Yeah. And we kind of worked our way back from there. And um, essentially the things that seem to be important are that the, the photo period has to decrease. So you have to have days getting shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, the temperature has to decrease, so it has to be getting cooler over time. And during that temperature decrease, the temperature has to fluctuate. So he's got this kind of accelerated six-week acclimation regime, and it seems to need all of those three components. He wasn't able to make it shorter, wasn't able to do it without any of those three components. And then voila, you get freeze-tolerant crickets. And so that opens up a whole bunch of stuff for us because now we can, you know, take a pile of crickets, we can divide them, and then those ones can all be made to be freeze-tolerant, and those ones, their, their siblings, can be not freeze-tolerant, right? And I think you already, uh, I mean, you already just mentioned it, but I just want to reiterate how, 
I think that's so remarkable that it was those three factors combined, you know, just decreasing shorter, you know, day length or slowly decreasing temperature did not do it by itself with those three things kind of combined, you were able to simulate similar survival to freeze tolerance is what you'd get in the field, which again is just really, I found that really remarkable. What was it? You needed all those factors over six weeks and you got an average of 92% survival uh, freeze yeah. tolerance. So what we haven't done yet is actually tease out why those different things are necessary. Like what, mm -hmm. what, what is it about, what is it that the cricket can't do if it only gets decreasing photo period that it does if it gets decreasing temperature? Events? I mean, if we ever, if we ever allowed undergrads in the lab again, it'd be a great, um, <laughs> it'd be a great project. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and, you, and you discuss in there, so some of this, the, the ability to survive is correlated with uh, gut and hemolymph osmolality. And so basically this higher osmolality when they are freeze tolerant. Can you talk about why that's important? What do we, what is osmolality and how's that playing? Yeah, so, so osmolality is just the, is just a measure of the concentration of stuff in a solution, right? So it's kind of like a, a, a single number that accounts for all of the sugars and salts and proteins and goodness knows what else that's in there. They all basically have equal weighting because one thing, you know, one mole of stuff is an, is equivalent to one osmol, regardless of what that stuff is, whether it's a pure substance or a, you know, or, or a thousand different things each at one milliosmol. Yeah. So, so when we see an increase in osmolality, that tells us that the concentration is increasing. There's two possible causes of that. One is that they are dehydrating, so there's less water to dilute the stuff that's already there. And the other is that they've accumulated more, you know, more things in the hemolymph. Like from the cells to the hemolymph, basically, are concentrated yeah. that way? Or? So what we find is that there's no real difference in the main stuff that you find in the hemolymph right? So the salts, the sodium, the chloride, right? That's what, where most mm -hmm. of the concentration comes from. That gives you all the gradients that let your cells work and your, you know, your nerve neurons fire and all those, all those things we, we, you know, all those luxuries we take advantage. Take <laughs> the luxuries of life. Yeah. The luxuries of life. Exactly. <laughs> Basically. So then, um, Yantina Toxopaeus, she measured a bunch of stuff and found that, that we didn't see any difference in sodium and chloride means that it that means that they're not dehydrating there's the same amount of water there the same amount of ions right okay. the concentration there hasn't changed so they're, they're adding more things to the same amount of water they accumulate three main things in reasonable concentrations for for the that account for this increase in concentration proline remember i talked about proline before with these mm -hmm. fly survive freezing so that's pretty cool we found myoinositol which is essentially glucose with a bunch of extra OH groups on it. So that makes it into a polyhydroxy alcohol that changes its interactions with water. It makes it a bit more reactive. It makes it do sort of other things with other molecules. And we found this sugar called traolose, which is, um, it's a disaccharide. So it's two, two glucoses stuck together. And that's what insects use normally as a blood sugar. Um, but that's interesting because normally we regulate the amount of blood sugar, right? So accumulating more blood sugar doesn't always make sense. But traolose is a little bit of a magic blood, blood sugar because it's relatively non-reactive. Okay. So we can kind of make up a story for each of, for why each of these different 
molecules might do different things. And, you know, that's, a, that, that's in fact a different paper, that, that story. But none of these surprised us. They all made sense as the kinds of molecules that, that insects might be making. Um, the other thing that we looked at was what this freezing or what this freeze tolerance did to the temperatures at which they froze. The idea behind that, things don't freeze at zero degrees C. They don't freeze at the freezing point of water, they freeze at some temperature below that. And the reason for that is that it actually takes some kind of ice nucleus for ice that ice forms around. Like a scaffold or something for that exactly. ice to start its, its crystalline structure to form off of. Exactly. And the single best ice nucleator is ice itself, so other ice crystals. Um, and so that, for example, with the Chimamiza story, that's why it needs to be in contact with ice to survive freezing. So that helps control ice formation. Interesting. Um, if you go skiing and they have um, artificial snow making, right, what they're doing there is they're just pumping out zillions of tiny droplets, like tiny, tiny droplets of water, right, at, that go into the air, they get really cold, and then ideally they freeze and fall as snow. Hmm. Or at least stuff that's similar to snow. <laughs> the problem with that is that a very, very small droplet of, of water um, resists freezing extremely well. So it's, it sits in a state that we call super cooled. Um, so, so this is, I mean, if you've ever seen, you know, those YouTube videos of people having ultra pure water in a, in a glass or a bottle, they might stick in the freezer and they take it and it hasn't frozen. And if they tap it on something, all of a sudden the whole thing like freezes right before your eyes and that's, exactly. it's in a super cooled state. Yeah. And freezing rain, that's exactly what freezing rain is. It's hovering around up there in a cloud as liquid water droplets at maybe minus 20, minus 25, falls to the ground, stays super cooled. It's liquid right up until the point that it hits something on the ground and then it freezes and suddenly you wake up and you wake up and the world has no friction. Yeah. <laughs> and you need spikes on the bottom of your shoes. Yeah. Exactly. So anyway, so the thing is that if you are super cooled and you freeze at a very low temperature like that, then the freezing process happens really, really fast. And so we think that one of the problems with being a freeze tolerant insect is that you don't want to freeze really, really fast. You don't want ice inside your cells. You don't want ice crystals growing in ways that might damage membranes or tissues and things like that. So there's a, there's quite a lot of evidence that freeze tolerant species tend to have higher freezing points in the winter when they're freeze tolerant than in the summer when they're not. Hmm. The way we can do this is essentially, so well, there's a bunch of ways you can do this, but the way that we did was we took our cricket and we disassembled it, right? Nice. Each of the individual little pieces, and then we froze each of the bits individually, right? And what we found was that for a couple of bits, so the gut froze at a slightly higher temperature in the, when it's freeze tolerant than when it's not. Okay. And the hemolymph, so the blood also froze at a slightly higher temperature, well, actually at a much higher temperature. So kind of minus seven versus, or minus six or seven versus minus 15 um, when it was freeze tolerant than when it wasn't. And so what we think is happening is that the, um, the, the crickets are producing some, something, some kind of factor 
that initiates ice formation and allows them to control the location and temperature of ice. In other species, it seems that that is a protein, but we don't know in these guys yet. Wow. And so that's one of the things that y'all uh, hope to understand with this system. And, and are you hoping this will be adopted more widely as, as a model system? That would be ideal. Give me a call. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in fact, like if we were going to conferences right now, my kind of standard conference talk at the moment is trying to sell the species as a model system. We've done a bit of work on exploring what these um, cryoprotectants do. We're doing some work on the metabolic costs of being frozen and thawed. We're doing some work on whether being on essentially on whether being frozen and thawed is bad for the mitochondria or not. And if it's not, hmm. not because it's bad for everyone else's mitochondria. But there's there's an awful lot to do, you know. So we we uh, and, oh, and I should say, and I also have a student, Alyssa, who's working on figuring out how they go about accumulating all of this blood sugar, which as I said, it makes no sense because they are usually quite tightly programmed not to accumulate lots of blood sugar. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's lots of things to do. And really, like, we're hoping to move the system out so that we get different people that are interested in different things. For example, there's an awful lot of endocrine stuff going on, you know, regulating all of this acclimation. I'm not interested in endocrinology, but I would love for someone else to be. Yeah. Um, we have, we have one sucker so far, which is that Yantina Toxopeus, the first author of this paper, she has just landed a job at St. Francis Xavier University out in Nova Scotia. So she's going to be kind of using Gryllus Velitus as one of her models. So her official job title is that she's a cell biologist. So she's going to be looking at kind of the, some of the cell biology aspects of freeze tolerance. In this oh, very nice. Oh, good. And and for a lot of our listeners, they might not know, but you're actually going to get one of these crickets live in your mailbox just for listening. Um, there's no guarantee it'll stay in there, though, by the time you go check your mailbox. So go check it right away. Oh, yeah. Well, they are widespread in North America. So on average, yes. And, and <laughs> so they're the Springfield cricket, right? So they overwinter as, um, as a nymph. So those guys right now are running around, certainly where I am, they'll be singing in the next week or two, I imagine. Um, and then they lay their eggs, they develop through the, through the, the summer, and then they overwinter as nymphs. The fall field cricket, Gryllus pensylvanicus that I mentioned, they look almost the same. Um, in fact, they look pretty much exactly the same, except they overwinter as an egg, and they have a completely different life, st- life cycle. Interesting. Yeah, and they're actually a real, they're, they're both a pain and really handy to keep in the lab. Because on the one hand, they have this um, obligatory diapause, so they have to live in the fridge as eggs for three months or they don't hatch. Oh, my gosh. So that's like a real pain if you just want to make (laughs) it. It's really awesome if, for example, there's a global pandemic and it shuts your entire lab down. (laughs) You can just chuck them in the fridge and come back and get them later. Nice. As long as your fridge doesn't shut down as well. Yeah, you're good to go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So do we have these crickets like in warmer climates? Like would I find them in Texas? So Southern Canada to Northern Georgia and as far west as Washington and Oregon. And I think BC as well. Um, so mostly areas that have some freezing, uh, a decent amount of freezing. For the most part. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but it's certainly something to something that we would like to explore is that there must be geographic variation. Our guys come from Lethbridge, Alberta, which is cold, but not as cold as some parts of the of their distribution, right? Because out on the prairies where there's not much snow, they're going to be exposed to pretty low temperatures. Um, you know, ironically, we don't have a population from from my garden right now. Um, <laughs> Not I yet. Now that they've established it, uh, might be a different story. Well, there is. I was going to give that that um, caveat, which is that I don't think we would use my garden as a collection site for precisely that reason. That just in <laughs> just in case they are, you know, just in case yep. they are a population. We're actually pretty good at not letting them escape because we have this like giant mesh cage that they can't can't get out of. But you know, who knows? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, hey, I want to thank you so much for uh, kind of walking through this paper with me and, uh, you know, learning a little bit more about this particular model system. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there, and I look forward to seeing how it's used to further our understanding of freeze tolerance uh, in insects, but also just in general. No problem. It's been a delight. <laughs>